Good morning. It's good to see you all. It's good to be with you this morning. And we are continuing our sermon series going through the book of Galatians. Our sermon text this morning is Galatians chapter 4, verse 21 through chapter 5, verse 1. Galatians was written by Paul, a letter written by Paul around the year 48. And here we are reading it studying it and preaching from it approximately 1,973 years later. And we do so not because it's an interesting artifact of history. This ancient letter has so much to offer us. It reveals the truth about God to us, the truth about the gospel. It points out how we are tempted to disbelieve the truth of the gospel it instructs us in our faith. It encourages us. It builds us up. It offers us comfort. And ultimately, it has the power to change us, to transform us. And the reason that this letter that Paul wrote nearly 2,000 years ago has this power is because ultimately it is the Word of God. We recognize that when we look to the Bible, we are not merely reading words written by man, but we are reading the Word of God. We know that the Lord has chosen to use human authors to reveal himself, to reveal his word. And in the case of Galatians, he used Paul. He used Paul's personality. He used Paul's experience. He used Paul's historical situation. He used his intellect, his wit. He used his love and his desires. He used all of these things in order to perfectly communicate the things that he wanted to communicate through this letter that we read called Galatians. And I bring this up because I hope we are continually amazed and in awe of God's word. Here we are, reading a letter written to a group of churches nearly 2,000 years ago, and yet because it is God's word, it is powerful and life-changing for us here this morning, halfway across the planet Thousands of years later, God's word is awesome. It is powerful. It is life-changing. May we never take it for granted. One of the things that really stood out in the scripture and in Nate's sermon last week was Paul's words in chapter 4, verse 19, where he wrote, My little children, for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. This verse provides a profound picture of his motivation in writing this letter. First, he had an intimate relationship, an intimate connection with the Christians in Galatia, referring to them as my little children. He had preached the gospel and led many to faith in Christ, helping to start numerous churches in the region of Galatia. And in a sense, they were like spiritual children to him. And secondly, he had a burden for the Galatians as he described himself as being in the anguish of childbirth again. In order to have spiritual children in Galatia, he had to give himself to the difficult labor of evangelism and making disciples in the context of hostility and persecution. And while leading them to faith in Christ was like labor, he felt like he was in labor again when he wrote the letter as he was laboring to preserve them in the faith. And finally, he had a strong desire for the Galatians, particularly that Christ would be formed in them. 
He was not unpacking profound gospel truth in the letter just for the sake of information transfer. He did not write as a dispassionate teacher, merely passing on a set of beliefs. His aim was spiritual formation. And what a powerful and succinct way to describe our spiritual formation. Christ formed in you. He wrote with a sense of urgency and purpose, and he wrote with a deep level of care. He wrote with the heart of a pastor, knowing a lot was at stake due to the fact that teachers had come to Galatia after he had departed and undermined his ministry by teaching things contrary to the gospel. Paul loved Jesus, and he was confident that the gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. He also cared deeply about the Christians in Galatia and was grateful for their faith in Christ. But he had heard that they were wavering from standing firm in the truth of the gospel. So the Lord inspired him to write this letter. The letter is incredibly relevant for us today. Just as the Galatians faced temptation to disbelieve different parts of the gospel, so too will you. Our hope and prayer as we study Galatians is that Christ will be increasingly formed in us. For Christ to be increasingly formed in us, we need to persevere in believing the gospel and the truth about our salvation. We hope and pray that the Lord will use our study to fortify us in the truth of the gospel, even as false teaching in the name of Jesus abounds. And what we are going to see in our passage this morning is that Paul believed part of the reason for their wavering in the gospel was due to their misunderstanding of the Old Testament. Their misunderstanding and misapplication had grave consequences. I'm going to read Galatians chapter 4, beginning in verse 21 through chapter 5, verse 1. Tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and one by a free woman. But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born through the promise. Now this may be interpreted allegorically. These women are two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai, bearing children for slavery. She is Hagar. Now Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free, and she is our mother. For it is written, Rejoice, O barren one who does not bear. Break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than those of the one who has a husband. Now you, brothers, like Isaac, are children of promise. But just as at that time he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the Spirit, so also it is now. But what does the Scripture say? Cast out the slave woman and her son, for the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. So, brothers, we are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. 
In verse 21, Paul pointed out the absurdity of looking to the law in order to be justified. The false teachers in Galatia were insisting that in order to truly be saved, one must adhere to God's law. They were looking to the law that God had given to his people through his servant Moses at Mount Sinai for their justification. The most notable example was their insistence that one must practice circumcision in order to be saved. And sadly, some of the Christians in Galatia were embracing this. By embracing this teaching, they were placing themselves under the law, which is why Paul said, tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you listen to the law? It's as if he was saying, do you even understand what you are asking for? Are you not aware of the implications of being under the law? It reminds me of the saying, be careful what you wish for. The desire to be under the law is absurd because if you want to be under the law, then the law will be your judge and that will not go well for you. If they truly listen to the law, they would understand that seeking to be under the law is a fatal mistake. Friends, we would do well to take this rhetorical question to heart. We likely don't think along the same lines as those false teachers in Galatia, but we may seek to justify ourselves through our own actions, through our own deeds, as if we can obey God, as if we can earn His favor, as if we can somehow contribute to our salvation. We can easily look to ourselves for our own justification. And when we are tempted to do so, we should remind ourselves of what is written in God's law. We should remind ourselves of God's standards and recognize that we all fall far short of his standards. We should recognize that we are all sinners. We've all fallen short. We cannot justify ourselves. And therefore, we should not look to the law. We should not look to our own obedience. We should not look to our own good deeds for the sake of our justification before the Lord. But underneath their desire to be under the law was a belief that somehow, some way, they could justify themselves. Anyone who is trusting in their own ability to obey God or live in a way that is pleasing to Him is making a fatal mistake. See, the good news in Jesus Christ is that even though we are sinners, even though we have fallen short of God's standards, even though every one of us is guilty of disobeying God's law, God has provided a way for us to be forgiven of our sins and reconciled to him. But it is not through our own efforts. It is not through our obedience. Rather, it is through the obedience of his son, Jesus Christ, who lived a perfectly obedient life on our behalf and then went to the cross to take the punishment we deserve in our place as our substitute. 
After he was crucified, he was buried and then rose from the grave, conquering death, and he ascended into heaven where he's now seated at the right hand of the Father. The good news, the gospel, is that God has provided a way for us to be saved. And he did so by providing Jesus Christ as the Savior of the world so that everyone who places their faith in Jesus, not in themselves, will be saved. Our faith is not in our ability to please God or obey God. Our faith is in Jesus Christ. Our faith is in his finished work, what he has done, what he has accomplished for us. And so we do not look to the law, but rather we look to Christ. Our hope is in him. Our faith is in him. We are confident in him. After the question in verse 21, do you not listen to the law? Paul went on to unpack the reason that their desire to be under the law was so problematic. And he did so by citing history and using allegory. I think what we need to see in these verses about Abraham, Hagar, Sarah, Ishmael, and Isaac was Paul's desire for the Galatians to rightly interpret and apply the Scripture. The teachers who came after him were wrongly interpreting and applying the Scripture, and because the Galatians were being persuaded by them, it was bearing bad fruit in their lives and in their churches. First, he referenced the history of Abraham. Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and one by a free woman. But then he made an important distinction between the birth of the two sons. On the one hand, the son of the slave woman was born according to the flesh. On the other hand, the son, of, uh, the son born of the free woman was born through promise. What did he mean? Well, in the book of Genesis, God made an extraordinary promise to Abraham that his descendants would be more numerous than the stars in the sky. As Abraham and his wife Sarah got older, there was one little problem, which we read about in Genesis 16.1, which says, Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. They didn't have any children. How could he possibly have more descendants than there are stars in the sky if they couldn't even get pregnant one time. The older they got, the more problematic it became. So what did they do in response? Well, they did what many of us would do when we encounter a problem. They took matters into their own hands. We read, And Sarai said to Abram, Behold now, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go into my servant. It may be that I shall obtain children by her. And Abram listened the voice of Sarai. So after Abram had lived 10 years in the land of Canaan, Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar the Egyptian, her servant, and gave her to Abram, her husband, as a wife. And he went into Hagar, and she conceived. In a moment of weakness, they devised their own strategy to have children that did not rely on God's power and was not the way God would fulfill his promise. This was the man-made solution to solve their problem, or as Paul said, born according to the flesh. But God, who is faithful to his promises, did not go back on his word, even after Abraham pursued children in a terribly sinful way. In Genesis 17, the Lord appeared to Abraham and reiterated his promise to give him many descendants and went a step further, telling Abraham he was going to give him a son by his wife, Sarah. At that point, Abraham was about 99 years old, Sarah 89 years old, and they understood how things worked. 
they understood that they were a little bit past the age of bearing children. The idea was so incredulous to Abraham that he thought, well, the Lord must be mistaken, so I'll help him out. I'll let him off the hook. Oh, Lord, yes, thank you uh, that Ishmael might live before you. I know Sarah's not going to have a baby, so maybe I'll remind him that Ishmael's here. And the Lord, the Lord responded, no. But Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his offspring after him. What Abraham viewed as possible, God said he would do. In Genesis 21, we read, The Lord visited Sarah as he had said, and the Lord did to Sarah as he had promised. And Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age at the time of which God had spoken to him. Abraham called the name of his son who was born to him, whom Sarah bore to him, Isaac. Sarah conceived and bore a son because God made a promise. God is faithful to his promises, and God has the power to deliver on his promises. And despite their failures and doubts, Abraham and Sarah believed God, and God delivered. In Hebrews 11.11, we read, By faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive even when she was past the age, since she considered him faithful who had promised Ishmael was conceived by way of a faithless, man-made scheme. Isaac was conceived by faith in the power of God according to his promise. Phil Riken writes, From the very beginning, there was a fundamental spiritual difference between the two sons. One son was born by proxy, the other by promise. One came by works, the other came by faith. One was a slave, the other was free. Thus, Ishmael and Isaac represent two entirely different approaches to religion. Law against grace, flesh against spirit, self-reliance against divine dependence. We need to be people who take hold of God's promises by faith rather than trying to control situations and fix problems our way and in our strength. Paul then proceeded to provide an allegorical interpretation of these historical realities. Hagar and Sarah each represent a covenant. Hagar represents the covenant the Lord made with the people of Israel at Mount Sinai. This, again, is where the Lord gave his people the law through Moses. As Paul had already said, the old covenant led to slavery under the law. Israel's life under the law was marked by slavery to sin. If you don't believe me, just read their history. Hagar, who was a slave, represented those who remain in spiritual slavery under the law. Then Paul made what may have been a shocking statement for some. He said, Hagar corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. He made a connection between Hagar and the Jews of his day because he viewed them as enslaved under the law. His opponents, these false teachers who came in after him and criticized him and distorted his teaching, were these Jewish people insisting on adherence to the Jewish law. And Paul was saying... 
They're spiritual descendants of Hagar, not Isaac. Sarah, on the other hand, represents the new covenant, which fulfills the covenant God made with Abraham. The covenant she represents is not a covenant of law, but a covenant of promise. The new covenant does not correspond to the earthly Jerusalem, but with the heavenly Jerusalem. Speaking to Christians, he said, the Jerusalem above is free and she is our mother. Those who believe in Jesus Christ are citizens of a heavenly city. The heavenly Jerusalem represents the heavenly city that awaits us as followers of Christ. Paul then used Isaiah 54.1 to make his point further. Listen again to the words from Isaiah. Rejoice, O barren one who does not bear. Break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than those of the one who has a husband. And when the Lord inspired Isaiah to write these words of prophecy, he was speaking to a people who were exiled. God's people had been taken away, had been taken in captivity away from their homeland because of their sin and their rejection and the rebellion of God. So they were facing exile, in captivity, apart from their homeland, under God's judgment. Tom Schreiner writes, the context of Isaiah is one of return from exile. Israel is like a barren woman whose children have been lost to exile. The Lord promises, however, to return her to the land where she will multiply and prosper The ultimate fulfillment of this promise has become a reality, not in the physical return of Israel from exile, but in the conversion of Gentile Christians in places like Galatia. The gospel produces true children of the Lord, children of the promise like Isaac. Therefore, the Gentiles of Galatia should exult with joy because they are the fulfillment of the promise. They are the true children of the Lord. And Paul drove this home in verse 28 when he said, Now you brothers like Isaac are children of the promise. Those who believe are children of the promise, both Jews and Gentiles. There are two options. If you seek to be under the law, then you are acting like you are under the old covenant, which would make you a slave to the law. But the other option is to belong to the covenant of promise, which means you would not be under the law, but rather would be free. Because the Christians in Galatia had believed the gospel, they believed in Jesus for their salvation rather than their ability to obey the law, they were children of the promise. Paul was telling them, this is who you are. You are true children of the Lord, not through natural means, but by supernatural means. Not because you were born Jewish, but because you were born again through the power of the Holy Spirit. Understanding God's word made all the difference in the world. And because he cared so deeply for these believers, he labored to help them rightly interpret and apply the scripture. The false teachers came to Galatia and were trying to enslave those who were free, and they sought to do so because they wrongly interpreted and applied the scripture. Paul said, you, dear Christians, have believed in Jesus. And therefore, you are true 
children of the promise. Not through obedience to the law, but through faith in Christ. Paul wanted them to see the false teachers for who they were and recognize what they were really trying to do. He characterized the work of false teachers as persecution. Referring to Ishmael and Isaac, Paul said that Ishmael, who was born of the flesh, persecuted Isaac, who was born of the spirit. The persecution of Isaac by Ishmael is briefly referenced in Genesis 21. And what Paul did there was use that situation the persecution of Ishmael toward Isaac to turn the tables on the false teachers. He said, they think they are the true children of Abraham and Isaac. But because of their actions, they are revealing that they are descendants not of Isaac, but of Ishmael. And you, who are believing, who are justified by faith, just like Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness, you who believe in Christ and are justified by faith are the true children of Abraham and Isaac. And those who think they are by teaching you to obey the law are actually the children of Ishmael. False teaching leads people away from the truth. To lead people away from the truth is to lead them away from Jesus and ultimately into bondage. Paul cared deeply for the Galatian Christians. He was angry with the teachers who came after him and preached a different gospel. He was pained by the fact that some of the Christians were buying into the false teaching. So he contended for the truth of the gospel and then exhorted the Christians in Galatia. Up to this point in the letter, he had done a lot of teaching with very few commands. He was unpacking for them the truth of the gospel. He was correcting false teaching but there are very few examples of him telling them, now do this. But then in chapter 5, verse 1, he told them what to do. He told them how to respond to the truth he had been teaching. In 5.1, he said, for freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. First, he emphasized the conclusion from the previous verses by giving a very succinct summary of the purpose of Christ's work. Jesus sets us free so that we can enjoy the freedom that comes through the gospel. We are not meant to live under the burden of the law. We are not meant to live with the pressure of trying to justify ourselves before the Lord. We are not meant to live with the fear that if I don't do all the wrong, uh, right things, God will reject me. No, we are meant to be free from these burdens. They are too heavy. The gospel brings freedom because we are justified by faith in Jesus Christ and not works of the law. Jesus wants us to enjoy the freedom that he has provided for us. In light of this, Paul told them to stand firm and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. He told them to stand firm, meaning continue believing the gospel that I preach to you. Stand firm in believing the gospel, even when others pressure you to abandon what you believe. Even when others say things that sound good, 
even when others ridicule you and mock you for believing the gospel, even when you face persecution and hostility for your faith in Jesus Christ, stand firm in believing the gospel. He wanted them to stand firm rather than submit again to a yoke of slavery. To be under the law is to be under a burdensome yoke of slavery. No matter what you do, it is never enough. And Jesus came to set us free from that burdensome yoke. In Matthew eleven twenty-eight 28 through 30, Jesus said, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Jesus provides rest for our souls. Jesus came to liberate us from a burdensome yoke and replace it with his yoke, which is easy and light. In his book, Gentle and Lowly, Dane Ortland writes, Consider what Jesus is saying. A yoke is the heavy crossbar laid on oxen to force them to drag farming equipment through the field. Jesus is using a kind of irony, saying that the yoke laid on his disciples is a non-yoke, for that is a yoke of kindness. Who could resist this? It's like telling a drowning man that he must put on the burden of a life preserver, only to hear him shout back, sputtering, No way, not me. This is hard enough. Drowning here in these stormy waters, the last thing I need is the added burden of a life preserver around my body. That's what we are all like, confessing Christ with our lips, but generally avoiding deep fellowship with him out of a muted understanding of his heart. We can have the burdensome yoke of slavery or the light and easy yoke of Christ. There is no reason to submit yourself to a burdensome yoke. And hear this again. Jesus wants you to enjoy the freedom that comes from believing and him. What we see in our passage is that Paul strongly desired for the Galatians to rightly interpret the scripture so that they would know their true identity, understand the benefits that come with their true identity, and finally so he could exhort them to live in a way that was consistent with their identity and thus enjoy those benefits. Regarding their identity, they were children of the promise. The benefits of being children of the promise included enjoying freedom and receiving a glorious inheritance. Because they were children of the promise who are free, he exhorted them to stand firm in the gospel and not return to spiritual slavery. We too have a desire here at Restoration Road Church to rightly interpret and apply the scripture. And why is this? It's because we desire Christ to be formed in us. It is wonderful to know that through faith in Christ, we are true children of the promise. We belong to the Lord. It is wonderful to know that we have an extraordinary and glorious inheritance in him. He is our inheritance. In Christ, we receive every spiritual blessing. And moreover, we are going to receive glorious transformed bodies so that we can enjoy the new heaven and the new earth for all of eternity. 
Listen to Revelation chapter 21, verses 1 through 4, which gives us a picture of our future inheritance. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. As those who are children of the promise, we are the recipients of a glorious inheritance. We begin to enjoy that here and now. And we will enjoy that in its fullness, in its entirety, in the future. And nothing in this life, none of the best things in this life in its present form compare to the inheritance that we have in God. It is wonderful for us to enjoy the freedom that Christ has won for us. It is wonderful to be able to revel in that, to meditate on that, to enjoy that freedom that he gives to us. We are free from the most burdensome yokes there are. We are completely and totally free, and it is wonderful for us to enjoy this. Knowing and believing the truth grows our love and affection for Jesus. Knowing and believing the truth is the way Christ is formed in us. May this be true of us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your glorious word. What a precious gift. We pray that we will look to your word to know you, to believe in you, to walk in your ways. We pray that you will help us to rightly interpret and apply your word, knowing that in your word there is life, there is joy, there is peace, there is rest for our souls. We pray that we will rightly interpret and apply your word so that Christ will be formed in us, so that our love and our affection for Christ will grow. Help us to continually believe and apply the wonderful truths of the gospel. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.